Hey, CN Efforts, this episode is sponsored by Liquid IV. And I gotta say, some delicious stuff. Nice way to rehydrate and fuel those endurance activities. Or if you just want to zhuzh up your water. It's some tasty stuff. Been a big fan, big fan of the lemon lime. Non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy. There's a sugar-free version, too, that I've really dug. The white peach. should really go for that. Get 20% off. When you go to liquidiv.com, use the promo code CNF at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using the promo code CNF at liquidiv.com. Solitary writer at kitchen table calls murder suspect's son to see if they're aware that their father was involved in a murder or not. Hey, CNFers, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. It's that Edivistian time of the month, so we got a new issue of The Edivist coming out today, featuring the writer Tom Donaghy. Tom is a screenwriter by trade, and he dipped his toe into the journalistic waters to try and solve a cold case, the murder of the Fudge King, Ocean City's Harry Ungelmeyer a local luminary, a member of the queer community, and a perceived threat to the perfect picture along the Jersey Shore. You can read the story at magazine.adivis.com. I encourage you to subscribe, and no, I don't get any commissions. I'd tell you if that were the case. If you head over to brendanomero.com, hey, hey, you can read show notes and sign up for my Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter, a curated list, an essay by your resident crank, book recommendations, stuff to make you happy, Stuff to make you think goes up to 11. Like, oh, literally, the list is 11 items long. First of the month, no spam. Can't beat it. Also, consider heading to patreon.com slash cnfpod. Sure, I'm asking for some money, but what you get is more than the satisfaction of helping this podcast. You get access to a community of other CNF and writers. Lately, I've been starting these threads, and then you talk amongst yourselves. Don't lurk. Jump in and contribute to the conversation. Maybe find a way to exchange contact info. Make a friend. Patreon.com slash CNFBot. And we got three new patrons. Thank you to Louise Julieg, Caroline Rothney, and welcome back, David Yemain. That's amazing. Really cool. Free ways to support the show. You can always leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or ratings on Spotify. And one last thing. Shout out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. Not a paid plug, but I am a brand ambassador, and I love to celebrate this amazing thing. If you head over to athleticbrewing.com, use the promo code BRENDANO at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money, and they are not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get points towards T-shirts and hats or beer. Give it a shot. All right, but before we get to Tom, we're going to hear from Jonah Ogles, the lead editor of this piece for The Atavist. He's got some really, really beautiful insights that I think you're going to want to consider as you go about your CNF and journey. Here we go. Riff. identify as um, 
you know, common hang-ups among, you know, the, the entire stable of Atavis writers that you routinely, well, not, not routinely work with, but just in general, like what, what writers tend to need? You know, there, there are sometimes reporting questions. I mean, that, that comes up a lot, actually, that just like in the process of reporting, you hit a wall with something, either reaching a source or finding a document or yes, anything like that. Um, so those, those come up quite a bit. And then I feel like I, there are certain writers who want to talk as they're writing the draft, you know, who, who they hit like a, a point in writing the story where they feel like they don't know exactly what to do, or they want somebody to look at the first section to make sure they're on the right track or the first big chunk of words. It's funny if the if there's a writer like that, they tend to reach out kind of early and often. You know, I, I think there are writers who just want like the collaboration and interaction and advice, and which I I think is smart and I appreciate that. You know, especially if they're having trouble, I'd much rather know about it early and be able to kind of talk it out and at least be on the same page about what we're trying, even if it ends up not working in the end. And then there, but there are some writers who just kind of want to be left alone to do their thing and they turn in the story and it's pretty good, you know? Um, so it just kind of depends, but I feel like reporting and then the draft stage are the two points where writers often reach out. Would you say that when in doubt, you'd like to hear more from the writer early on just so they don't paint themselves into corners that can be really hard to get out of? Yeah, totally. If if something isn't, if a writer feels like something isn't going right, they are probably correct in that assessment, you know? <laughs> if So if they need help, I would much rather be aware of it and talk it through and, and just like come up with a plan together so that we know what's happening with the story. Because there's nothing more frustrating from my standpoint than like getting a draft, reading it and being like, you know, what did this person say when you talk to them? And then the writer's response is, well, I'd, I never did talk to them because they never picked up the phone or whatever, you know? Or I couldn't get these documents because they said it wasn't uh, subject to the the FOIA laws, you know. And and like I would always rather know that in advance, even though I guess there's not much of a difference between saying, "Oh, try these things now that the draft is written," versus doing it before the draft. I like being made aware of any issue up front. You know, writers shouldn't feel. Uh, that they're like inconveniencing me at least maybe other editors are, are different but Sayward and I like to communicate a lot so we we really encourage writers reaching out and when a writer is stuck or spinning his or her wheels or their wheels you know what is the you know, a way that you uh, try to get them back on track or you know just what is the how do you coach them back if they're yeah. stuck? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times they just in talking to me, they coach themselves back, you right. know, like yeah. I'm, I'm a therapist basically, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, saying, yeah, yeah. Right. It's hard. And, and they sort of come up with a solution just as they're talking to me for writers who are feeling stuck in a draft. 
I, there are a couple of things that I've tried over the years that seem to be pretty helpful. And, and if they're just having trouble getting started or, you know, like just kind of getting words on the page and I'm, this is not an original idea of mine. I've picked it up from probably, you know, dozens of other people who have recommended it, but just like starting, starting a draft in an email like you're like you're gonna email your buddy who you want to tell the story to just starting to write an email for some reason that's a little bit different than doing it in a word document you know and the words Mm -hmm. just come a little easier so they're not as i think there's less pressure to like make it right and you just sort of get it out so that that often helps Uh, i mean a lot of times what what I'll do with, with writers is they'll be talking to me, you know, they're stuck and you know, what they really need to say is, and then they say it to me and I'll just let them finish and be like that, that thing that you just (laughs) told me, that's a paragraph, you know, like start there and build out from it, you know, and recording yourself, I think would probably be an easy way to do that. Uh, you know, if the editor isn't reachable or, or just as another way to try it for writers who are having trouble with the structure, I use a trick that Alex heard taught me at outside where you just distill the section down to like two sentences, you Mm. know? So like, Brendan uh, encounters difficulty on his hike at 10,000 feet, wonders if he should be doing this, period. And then you look at the next section, you do the same thing. And what you end up with is like 500 word summary of the story. And you can just look at it and the sentences should still basically flow because your idea should flow that way. Um, So after Brendan encounters trouble, the next one should probably address how Brendan deals with that, you know? Um, and so when you, when you look at it that way, it's often pretty easy to identify, Oh, Hey, this section is out of place or it's not covering the ground that it needs to let's move it or revise it so that it is tied into the section that precedes it and follows it. Very nice. And with uh, Tom's story here, this you know this kind of cold case that he that he tracks down and tries to solve this mystery of a of a murder of the Fudge King on the on the Jersey Shore. Uh, you know, how did this you know strike you when it came across your desk? And just what were some of the unique challenges that this story presented to you on your side of the table? Yeah. Well, this was an interesting one because it, it was one of those drafts that came in. It came in draft form the pitch was the draft, you know, he'd done, he'd done the work, he'd done all the reporting. Um, so we were able to look at something very close to the finished product. And what struck Sayward and I about it when, when we first read it was that it was just so fun. And I, I, I know that can, there's sort of like a jaded editor mindset of um, dealing with stories that involve tragedy <laughs> where, where we just sort of ignore, we ignore like the subject uh, in order to talk about the writing, but the writing was just so fun. Um, and it was clear that he was having a good time as he was writing it. Um, and it just felt very kind of lively and, and, and right in front of you. You know, we pretty quickly realized like, 
this this is a good this is a good one for us it has a lot of the things that an atavist story should have um and it also has this writer who's just really really has a good sense of like how to how to tell a good story yeah and it's given that it's uh you know a murder that takes place uh i in the 60s does it because it's a much farther away is it does that grant uh you know the writer maybe a little more uh leash to to play with the story versus having it to you know to be like really really sensitive to you know someone who you know lost their life you know yeah right right i mean i Yes. And I think the short answer is yes. When, when it's, uh, when there's a tragedy that occurred a long time ago, you're not as concerned about living sources for whom this might be a a really, you know, sensitive topic, um, and who might be, you know, very concerned with how they're portrayed in a story. I do think that gives writers a little bit more leeway with with how they approach it. That said, I mean, one, one of the things that happened during the editing of this story is Tom really wanted to work in his, I guess for lack of a better term, the, the relationship he sort of built with Harry Engelmeyer, the, the fudge king who was murdered in 1964, because he, he felt a connection to Harry as a person. And that, that was one of the, probably one of the bigger things we added as the story moved through drafts is just a line here, a line there, you know, trying, trying to um, just make, make that connection feel real to readers. Yeah. And what was the, the connection that you felt that Tom was seeking uh, with, uh, you know, with the central figure of this piece? Well, you know, they, they share, they have a lot in common. They, Tom grew up kind of in the same region, you know, obviously it spent summers on in ocean city where Harry had his, uh, his fudge shop grew up eating the fudge. So that, so there's sort of that aspect of it. And also Harry was gay. Tom is gay, you know, so they have that shared experience of growing up in that very particular part of the world and in the way that people there viewed gay people and their place in the world. So he had he he had a lot of stuff and he, he actually writes in the story that at times he almost felt as if Harry was kind of like reaching through time to like urge him on. And I, I think he he came to identify a lot with Harry and in the position Harry found himself in, in in that moment in time. Oh, very nice. Well, well, Jonah, as always, always really cool to get your side of the table on these things, and also to drop in some little things that might help some other writers out there you know, as they work with editors to to get some of their uh, to get the best put their best narrative foot forward. So, as always, Jonah, thanks so much for the conversation here. My pleasure. All right, we are stepping right up to the plate with Tom Donaghy. This man doesn't have any social media presence, which I deeply admire, as you know, your resident rager against the algorithm. Or maybe he has some for research sake, uh, but that's about it. You can learn a bit about him at tomdonaghy.com. 
and you're about to learn a whole lot more about Tom and his story about Ocean City's Fudge King and why Tom needed to solve this near 60-year-old cold case. Let's do this. Oh man, I'm not sure it did to tell you the truth. Um, and in fact, I started looking into this story because I was researching it for what I thought might be a screenplay or, or a, a limited series. That's, that's how I spend my time at this point in my life. And then uh, once I got into it, um, I, I began to uh, just the, the research uh, took me deeper and deeper and deeper. And what happened was um, I had all this material and then the strike hit, the WGA strike hit. And uh, so I couldn't, you know, I don't know if you're going to want to include this, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't pursue it as any kind of screenplay or limited series. And, and one of my reps said, why don't you write an article about it. And I said, well, I've never done such a thing. And, and they said, well, you know, you've, you've got all this material, give it a shot. So that's how, that's how this happened. I kind of backed into it, which is how much of my career has unfolded to tell you the truth. <laughs> is, and is, is that how, like, uh, did you set out to be a screenwriter or like you said, you kind of found yourself backing into it somehow? I did not set out to be a screenwriter either. I mean, I, I, I was a playwright in New York. I consider myself a playwright, you know, by nature and, and, my, and history. And then I, I was visiting Los Angeles and I took a meeting and I ended up in television. And, uh, at a certain point, I, I started writing screenplays. Uh, and, and so this article uh, came about in, in a kind of organic way. You know, I, I, as I say, I, someone suggested I do it. And then I thought, well, this would be an interesting way to arrange this material. I had no idea what I was in for. I had no idea what it meant to investigate a cold case crime. I do have journalists in my life and they were helpful, you know, but it's not what I meant to do. And it took the stuffing out of me, let me tell you. <laughs> but uh, it's been extremely gratifying. In what way did the story take the stuffing out of you? Well, in so many ways, it takes place in 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 this landscape, Ocean City, New Jersey, where I visited as a child every summer uh, and where people I know still live. And I was dealing with uh, people who remembered this crime. I, you know, I ended up speaking to one of the eyewitnesses to Harry Engelmeyer's murder. You know, uh, I talked, of course, to Leland Stanford, who's in the piece. Uh, the, the public defender of the man acquitted uh, of this crime. I had no, you know, I didn't know how to do such things or approach such things, but I just kept going where the story led me. I guess that's what a journalist does, you know. Um, in this case, it was almost, I don't want to say not choiceful, but, but there was something about this story from the beginning, from when my brother brought it to me, that um, has led me it's, uh, more than I've chased it. You know, one thing led to another. One person led to another, to a, to a Facebook post, to a phone number, to a website, to a blog. It, it was as if I was being, you know, sort of pulled through this. Now, I went happily, and, uh, but, but I was dealing with real people and real history, and that's not generally what I do. So that's what took <laughs> the stuffing out of me. Um, <laughs> And I want to honor the, the truth as I understand it. And it's a slippery 
truth. And I want to honor this man, Harry Engelmeyer, who is, uh, you know, uh, fascinating. Uh, I want to I keep wanting to use the language of, of, of television and screen, which I was about to say character. He's not a character. He's a, mm. he was a man. And, and so all of this is different to me. Yeah. And I, uh, and, and speaking with Jonah, like, I understand that, you know, you just had like a really, a good connection, if you will, to, to Harry. And I wonder if maybe you can articulate what that connection was and why you maybe felt so strongly about him. Right. Well, first of all, he, he was a charming, by all accounts, a charming, good, fun, uh, you know, guy, you know, um, I have a, a photo of him that I, I keep and he just, he's someone I'd want to hang out with. And, and he, and he was a gay man as am I who, who lived in this town where I grew up long before I ever visited it. And, and somehow made it not just a success of himself, but a, but a real, you know, splash. And, uh, and by all accounts, many accounts, most accounts was really well loved and uh, well-regarded and respected. And yet he was uh, mostly uh, openly gay, as openly gay as he could be in 1964. So all of this was astonishing to me. He was, also, he was good to his family. He was good to his workers. He was, he was engaged civically. He was trying to move his, this, this place this, this small town founded by Methodists into the future. I mean, I was thinking about him this morning. I, I think about him frequently, but I left that place. You know, I left the places where I grew up to go to places where there would be people more like me. He stayed and wanted to change it from within. I would not have had that fortitude. So he has my respect and affection you know, from this distance. Now it's clear that you, you know, you really have a, like a connection to him and a genuine, like, uh, you know, to use the character term, but like kind of a love for this character. And, uh, and given that he was a real live person who was uh, un- just tragically, you know, brutally murdered, you know, what, uh, to what extent was the, you know, did you feel like the, the weight of wanting to honor his story over the course of the reporting and the writing of this piece? Well, uh, tremendously. I, 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 at times it was, I didn't know if I could rise to the occasion to tell you the truth. I mean, the other, the other thing about him that is so striking is, you know, that town was and is, it's America's greatest family resort. That's what it calls itself. It was, and and I I remember as a child seeing families around me, men and women families with children, and that was the only family. And there, and uh, there was it was a very Christian community, and um, and especially in 1964, he was saying, uh, you know what? I I don't want you to tell me what to do on Sundays. I want to make some fudge. I want to sell it. I want to be a businessman. That's that's that was really provocative. And it's it's still provocative. You know, you know, we live in a world and and where we're still being told what we might, you know, maybe should be doing on Sundays. So, uh, you know, I he came to be a hero to me and I wanted to that's I wanted to um, 
make sure he was a hero to everyone who, who would read the piece, you know? So that's what I endeavored to do. When you're dealing with, uh, in the, in the nonfiction world, and then you come across someone of this nature who you just, by virtue of what they stood for, you come to very much admire them. And then like you were saying a moment ago, like, you know, feeling like, can you rise to the occasion to tell their story and, and honor them? Like that is a, that is a psychic burden that so many writers of nonfiction feel. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just great to hear you articulate that because it is, it is tough to do. It is, it is tough to do. And, um, I need a rest after this, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but don't get me wrong. It was, um, invigorating and it engaged the people around me, my family, uh, who I mentioned in the piece who were, were and are so invested in this and the people I talked to on the ground in Ocean City. And um, that was new to me. You know, that's when you write, when you make up stories in your head, you don't, it, it, uh, you, you're in your head. But this was me going into the world. And um, it was it was very, very uh, gratifying in a way that I'm not generally gratified by what I do. So I might yet do it again, but as I say, this story fell in my lap. It, I, I'm not sure a story like this would fall in my lap again. Uh, hmm. In fact, I'm sure it, it would not. Yeah, and given since you weren't uh, trafficking in, let's say, imagination, where you can patch in those kind of holes with your own creativity, you know, this way you're beholden to the facts and if you need a certain information, you need to go out and seek that particular person out. So in what way was that uh, a challenge or maybe not a challenge for you over the course of the generation of this piece? Well, as I say, it had this piece had a strange evolution. I thought I was doing research for a story, and then I found, uh, uh, no, I was actually going to be investigating what happened in this cold case murder. And, and that happened about when I got the files, the investigation files from the Atlantic uh, County Prosecutor's Office after making an uh, open public records request. And when I got those files, 168 pages, I realized (laughs) um, most profoundly that I was um, on a whole new journey. So so I had to really uh, uh, get down to business. And and, uh, I worked with um, a research assistant and uh, we made, you know, Excel spreadsheets and, you know, uh, contact lists. And and, um, uh, I... I turned into a, a, a different kind of writer um, because of wanting to get it right. Well, and, and given that you had, uh, you know, a journalist friends in your orbit, you know, what what kind of yes. counsel did you seek from them for for this? Well, I would call. I I have a friend who writes for the New York Times, who's who's a great guy, and I would call him and say, "How do you call someone up and say, do you realize your father may have been the actual murder in a cold case? You know, mm-hmm. how do you do that? You know, I, I there was no, I had no idea, I, and I would say, what are the rules around quoting people? Um, you know, can I didn't know if you could change a word. I, you know. I, and I should say that, that that Jonah and everyone at the Atavist was extremely helpful in, in in holding my hand through this. I didn't know what the protocol was. I at, at toward the end of this experience, when, once it was an article, 
Um, I didn't know how to circle back to law enforcement and say, we're going to print this as an article. You know, do you have any comments? I, need, I needed a, a, a real help, you know. So I just asked and asked and asked, which is, you know, what I do generally. You know, I, I'm not afraid of, of uh, asking a question and um, just hope that people would answer, answer. And many people did not. You know, many people or many people... Uh, initially talked to me, then wouldn't. Some of that is in the piece. And that was confusing, you know, but then but that's par for the course, it turns out, you know. So I was learning as I went. As someone who kind of struggles making cold calls and having that initial conversation, especially when you're, you have like, uh, it's a foreign phone number popping up on someone's phone and you got to like pitch them real quick who you are, that you're not a robocaller, that you're not uh, a scammer of some kind, and that you're looking to talk to them for certain information. And, and uh, So for you, what was that experience like for you that might help other people who struggle with the cold calling nature of this uh, line of work? Right. Well, I always uh, wrote a script for myself before I made such calls. And in fact, I wrote several variations of that script, depending on how the call might proceed. You know, yeah. so I had two or three versions in front of me. Um, um, and, uh, you know, some people I had phone numbers, some people I only had emails, you know, um, some people I reached out to on Instagram, actually, Christopher Brendan Hughes' son, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but, you know, he's he's only has a social media presence. So I reached out to him. I did not, by the way, I heard back from him, but he but he he didn't engage about the piece. Again, I just uh, groped through the darkness and, and just went by instinct, but I tried to be as prepared as I possibly could be. I tried to have in my head, or at least in front of me on a piece of paper, all the questions I could ask. Um, and then within that, if, I, if, if they only gave me five minutes, the three most important questions I needed to ask, you know? So a lot of this was just prepping before I got to the actual uh, interviews, you know. Um, I had, you know, I should say there were people uh, like Joyce Lickfeld, um, like Leland Stanford, who I talked to on several occasions. So that was because they were open and, and, and one conversation op opened up a lot of new questions. So then I would prepare a whole new script and, and uh, proceed that way. So, you know, I'm not sure I have... Uh, I could give a master class in this. In fact, I know I couldn't, <laughs> but but I somehow found my way as time went on. I find the the script is helpful to have that down just at a open screen in front of you. You you tend not to stumble over yourself. You're getting quick and to the point, and it uh, yes. it definitely it helps you from stammering over yourself and sounding uh, uh, sounding fretful, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And of course, I generally write scripts. So for me, that was what came naturally. <laughs> Interior, uh, picking up the phone. Exactly. <laughs> Solitary writer at kitchen table calls murder suspect's son to see if they're aware that their father was involved in a murder or not. You know. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean... Gosh, what like that must have been like you talk about a butterflies in the stomach call. Like what 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 was that like? Take us to that moment of dialing that phone number. Uh well, I rem right now I'm remembering uh Beth Blevin who um 
her father is mentioned in the piece as being a suspect, or at least a suspect. He wasn't an official suspect. He was a suspect in the minds of people on the ground in Ocean City for many years. And, you know, for real reasons, it seemed to me, at first anyway. And and that was such a long road even to get to her because that family was so off the grid. But I finally got her and and I just tried to be as respectful and as journalistic in the way I understood it as I could mm-hmm. be and lead with my uncertainty about what I was suggesting and saying I was just after the truth and and using the names that may have paved the way to get me to that phone call, you know. And uh, sometimes my credentials, uh, you know, uh, when you work in Hollywood, people answer the phone. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I just tried every trick in in, in the book, and um, you know, she was taken aback to to hear that her father had been thought of as a killer. She had not heard that. Um, that was another great mystery. Getting to her, and and I was rather shocked because I had heard her father's name from several sources as being involved in this murder. Uh, but she was, she was open and honest and she had spent, um, uh, several years of her life taking care of her father at the end of his life. And, um, she, she, she gave me the number of her sister and I talked to her sister, you know, the talking to them, because I do like talking to people. I like, I like hanging out and getting to know people. So that's kind of how I dealt with it. It was after the fact that I thought, oh man, you know, <laughs> did you just ruin this person's day? Or, you know, <laughs> and especially talking to some of the older people, you know, who who remember this is a very traumatic experience, uh, Harry Engelmar's murder and the, and the trial in, in five years after the murder. And, you know, Joyce uh, Lickfeld, who, who had me to her house, uh, you know that was intense. I actually brought my mother and my brother, who are who are mentioned in the piece, and Joyce um, uh, had with her her sister and her son. We sat around a, a, a table full of bagels and muffins and coffee and talked about a murder she had witnessed in 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 1964, and uh, she was the prime. She was the eyewitness to this murder. And it was not easy, but people are people. And, it, you know, if you, I think, present with mm, um, a sense of I'm just trying to understand this story because I think it's a story that needs to be told, people are generally responsive, unless, of course, they have something to hide. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, then doors were shut and, uh, you know. There were some people who, as I say, who didn't want to, who didn't, who talked to me and then didn't want to talk anymore. You know, that happened more than a few times, which is fair enough. And a moment ago, you wrote, you talked about how, you know, you're kind of writing, writing through the darkness. And I wonder for you, like, as you're writing through the darkness, how, how best do you illuminate that path? Uh, well, um, how be- that's a great question. How best, you know, I just kept my eye on the answers. I just kept thinking this is for him. This is for Harry. I just kept that in my head. 
And I relied on my friends, you know, I'm, I'm sure they uh, are complaining about me behind my back, you know, <laughs> I, I really did need uh, people to sort of um, help me through. Again, this story connects to my personal history in so many ways that there was no not telling it. And, uh, and I kept thinking, this connects to the landscape where I grew up, something about this story reveals to me, something about the landscape where I grew up, the people I grew up with, you know. And so that kind of notion led me through. Yeah, having that North Star and that connection to Harry and wanting to do right by him, too, it's like kind of when you get bogged down by by the weight of it or you want to give up, you know, you kind of have something that's like, oh, you know, I have a, something of a bigger purpose in telling this story, too. There's no question. And, you know, there's this thing about uh, this story, which is to say it is queer history that is that ran parallel to accepted history, you know, and I'm I'm super interested in those stories, It you know. This is as much a part of the history of that city as uh, the history of the blue laws there or the or the beaches that were segregated by tradition um, or the Methodists who founded that city that Gay Talese, you know, mentions in his books. Um, and and it had not been told. So that's what carries me through. You know, it's a, it's a, uh, I feel suited, I guess, to tell this particular uh, strain of history, which is this man who was a gay man. I don't know how he identified, but, but there's no question he, he was a gay man. And um, uh, that to me is, is, has always been important in storytelling, the stories that are missed, the stories that um, run alongside actual history. And, and, you know, probably that above all is what carried me through. Yeah. And I guess there's, um, you know, earlier when we were talking about your your screenwriting roots and how that maybe helped you with this story, uh, I think a lot of reporters, narrative journalists, they they don't have as great a handle on those sort of cinematic blocks that that really move a story forward. You know, they're very good at gathering information, something very good at writing information, but when it comes to pacing, suspense, scenes, sometimes that takes a bit of a heavier lift on the on the part of the of a, of a narrative journalism writer. Mm. Uh, so mm. in, in what ways did your screenwriter experience like really kind of help you propel this story and structure it? Oh, wow. Um, uh, well, it, it, it struck me as such a cinematic story at first, you know, that the world of the Jersey shore at that time, uh, uh, very sort of quaint, very picturesque, um, Ocean City, extremely charming, charming cottages and a Victorian architecture and the ocean and the boardwalk. It's all, it's stuff you, you have seen, you know, on the screen. And, uh, and, the, and the feeling of it uh, just struck me as this kind of noir. So I, 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 I had in mind, you know, um, double indemnity and, 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 and Scorsese. And, you know, it's just sort of, uh, part of, uh, what's in my head, you know, um, I'm glad that ends up in the piece. Uh, it, it's just, it, I can see the world. I can see it too, because I, I grew up in it, you know, 
Um, and, and there's also this great juxtaposition of, of Ocean City, America's greatest family resort, and Atlantic City next door, which was debauched and corrupt. And, you know, in 1964, when Harry was, was murdered that summer, um, the Democratic National Convention came through and, and, and there was this light on Atlantic City and, and people were appalled by what they saw, you know. So <laughs> you had these two very different places, almost, almost right next to each other. And it, it's something I had postcards up, you know, I, I, as I went, I started to collect, uh, on eBay postcards of all the places mentioned in the story. They're all up on, I have a wall that's all, um, corkboard. So, um, it, the visual of it, what it, it, I wanted to be inside the world, uh, visually as well as all the other ways one needs to be inside a story. Uh, it's just what I, I guess I do by nature. And, and, uh, and, and this story lends itself to that, I think, you know. I remember even as a kid just being so struck by that, by that landscape. I grew up in a, in a rather, I guess, homogenous uh, suburban um, suburb, you know, a suburb of Philadelphia. And then you'd go to this, the shore and it was uh, another world, you know, it was people, people, having cocktails and, and wearing a bathing suit and, you know, smelling of cigarettes, all of this was delicious to me. Not, you know, and then you'd have Harry Engelmeyer's fudge. Um, yeah. It was a very sensual place, very, you know, I can picture it still. Do you find yourself to be uh, much of a, like an outliner or are you kind of like by, by the seat of your pants, just kind of like, to see, see how it flows out or you follow something of a map along the way? Absolutely. Well, absolutely outliner. And that's not um, how I started writing. When I wrote plays, I didn't outline. But 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 uh, writing film and television, it's part of the industry. It's, it's part of what's required. It's actually super helpful to have uh, a place to go, you know, beat to beat to beat. And uh, I did, that was really my first um, task. Uh, in organizing all this material was was to to plan out all of it and um you know when i first wrote it the first draft of it was was kind of a mess of course and it was the longest thing i've ever written there's no question i mean it was like 35,000 words at the beginning i was i was appalled because i'm a, <laughs> I, I don't like i have i have a strange relationship to words um which is to say i'm ambivalent about them but but uh, but I was trying to get in every piece of research I had done. You know, I was so proud of myself at that point. And, and it doubled back on itself and it repeated itself and it went down roads it shouldn't have gone down and didn't pay off. And, you know, uh, again, uh, Jonah, who's such a great editor, was, was incredibly patient and helpful and giving it a kind of um, a, a narrative drive, you know, and really shaping up what I'd only sort of understood intuitively, you know. But yes, outline, absolutely, absolutely. What are some uh, some some books that you return to? Well, again, I I love uh, what's spare. You know, I I was when I was writing this, I reread a lot of Janet Malcolm. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, I love nonfiction. I love nonfiction and, and, um, uh, Joan Didion and, uh, 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 Eve Babbitts, you know, uh, um, I'm stuck on women of the sixties, seventies and 
Janet Malcolm, who, of course, her crime reporting is so excellent, and uh, and how she um, talks about um, the journalist as participant or not in the story, um, because I was hesitant to put myself in this story at first. Um, and it's something I had to be sort of talked into. And, and then I realized, well, of course I'm in this story, <laughs> you know, uh, and then I had to find a way to, um, uh, allow myself into the story in, in a way that, uh, I, I was just, uh, reading, I, I read, um, Joan Didion, I, you know, I like nonfiction. I like people writing about true crime. I like reading people writing about the culture. Um, but both of those uh, writers, very spare to the point writers. And um, it's Janet Malcolm who's, who, who, who helped me um, think about how I could be in the story um, of The Fudge King. Because at first I did not want myself in the story. Um, but then I was, you know, led to to believe I, I should be in the story because I was in fact part of the story and it was true. And I, but I had to, I had to make my way into it without um, it becoming about me. Um, and um, so I, I, I was reading people who were writing about crime uh, while I was while I was doing this. Yeah, that's always um, a tough uh, decision to make, whether you want to be a presence in the story or not, and then how much so. To, to what extent are you a guide, or are you part of the story? And that's always that's always a, a tough decision to make. Sometimes you have to experiment a lot as you go. Well, we did, we did um, dial it up more than I originally had thought um, we, we would. Um, but then I uh, sort of uh, came to peace with it because the fact is Harry's not around to talk to. And it's, it's um, the one great mystery that remains is uh, what he thought of all this, what he thought of uh, his life that last summer, you know, um, it, it, so it's me speculating on that. So that's how I am in the story. You know, it's me trying to understand what was going through this man's head, uh, this very charming man who loved people, who was actually being targeted by by the people in the community that uh, that he cared for so much. So that's how I understood I needed to be in the story, sort of speculating on what was maybe going through his head. I still don't ultimately know why Harry Engelmeyer stayed in Ocean City, America's greatest family resort. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. he could have been anywhere. He could have opened fudge shops in New York City where there was a burgeoning gay community, even in the early 60s, or Philadelphia, his hometown, my hometown, uh, in the early 60s in, in Rittenhouse Square where there, were a, a, what, there was a gay community. Um, I don't know why he stayed where he did stay, these questions are my questions about his life because he can't answer them. Um, and so that's how I'm in the story, you know. Would you have stayed if you were in his shoes? No. Yeah. No. No. I didn't stay. Yeah. 
I, you know, I left at 18. I left Philadelphia. I left, uh, I in fact did, had, had not been back to the Jersey Shore since I was a teenager, decades ago, uh, until I uh, went back uh, to celebrate my mother's birthday during the pandemic, at which point my brother, Michael, who is a chocolatier and confection maker himself, told me about this story. Hmm. And then I, then I, I realized I had to go back again. So <laughs> um, it's, it's a land I left um, because I, I, you know, I, I left because I knew people were, people who were more like me were elsewhere, do you know? Right. Um, but Harry stayed, and I don't know why. I wish above all I could ask him why he stayed because that led to his death, you know? It really did. He stayed, he fought, he wanted to make it a different place. Not essentially, but just take it a little bit into the future. I don't, I don't, I know people like that who stay within systems and change them. I, I don't know that I have that courage, you know? But I marvel at his attachment to that place. And maybe it was his family who, you know, he was very close to his family and his sister had apartments above, an apartment above Copper Kettle, as did Harry and her children worked in the shop and his mother would come visit in the summer. Maybe it was all that. Maybe it's just what he knew growing up. In that way, we're very different people, you know? Yeah. But of course, it was a very different time in 1964. Yeah, jeez. Very different time. I mean, you know, that's, that's part of it too. I have extraordinary freedoms. That man did not, you know, the American Psychiatric Association was calling homosexuality, you know, a sociopathic personality disturbance. Yeah. At that point, you know. Ugh. Life magazine, the summer before Harry's death, published this piece about uh, gay people that called them sad and sordid. You know, that was the climate at the time. So I'm not faulting Harry for, for not heading to New York or to uh, even Philadelphia's gay neighborhood. Uh, but, but he was so forward-thinking that I can't help but wonder why he didn't go, you know? Yeah. Over the course of your, your research and learning more and more about him, uh, what did you come to admire most about him? Oh, that he was a fighter. You know, he, in, in several places in the investigation files um, and in a couple of the press mentions, he's quoted as saying, I can take care of myself. And mm. it touched me. He was, a, he was by several accounts, a kind of brawler, kind of stocky and kind of, he would, t he would tangle with people, you know, he, I, but that, that moved me. I can take care of myself. That was, um, that's what stayed with me most about him. And not only could he take care of himself, he could, he could take care of the people around him. And I just think that's incredible. You know, no self-pity, no, you know, ultimately no real fear. He thought he could power through all his troubles that summer. They were coming for him. Those morals charges, um, uh, that he was accused of, you know, in the months before his death, the year before his death, actually. And he stayed and I can take care of myself. I mean, uh, you know, good for you, you know? Yeah. 
Oh, that's wonderful. Well, 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 Tom, as I like to bring these conversations down for a landing, I always ask the, the guests for a recommendation of some kind, and that can just be anything you're excited about. And uh, so I, I'd uh, pose that to you as we, uh, as we wind down here. Uh, what might you recommend for the listeners out there? Oh, man. Well, boy, you know, there must be something uh, going right in my life that I'm overwhelmed with things I might suggest. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to recommend Janet Malcolm's Two Lives, which is the, the book I read most recently about Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. It's a, it's a slim book. It is about uh, uh, how these two Jewish lesbians survived during the war in France. Uh, it, it is... Uh, um, uh, complex and uh, rich and, um, you know, uh, so astute. Her observations are, are incredible and what a writer. So that's what I would recommend. Well, fantastic. Well, well, Tom, if for, uh, for people who want to maybe, uh, you know, get a little more familiar with you and your work, is there any other, uh, any other uh, digital or online footprint where people can go find you? I have a very limited online footprint, but uh, <laughs> good. Uh, in fact, good for I don't you. have any <laughs> Yes, I don't have any social media. I there's there is a Wikipedia page, and um, uh, otherwise they'll just have to you know keep tuning in. Nice. How do you navigate uh, the the internet and just creative work without the the social media footprint? You know, I you know uh, that's a great question, Brendan. You know, I I. I think things come to everybody that should come to everybody. And I'm not sure that having an online presence brings anything more. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I'm a great believer in meeting up with people, IRL and, and seeing what happens. And, and um, I find a lot of that to be overstimulating and distracting and, putting me elsewhere. You know, I remember when it all began and I thought, oh, this is going to destroy everybody's sense of place. Mm -hmm. The sense of actual place will be obliterated because now we'll be any place or all the places. And so <laughs> I, I think, well, whatever might come to me if I have a stronger online presence will have to come to me another way. And if it doesn't, then it's not worth coming, you know? All right, thank you to Jonah and to Tom for a lovely conversation about all of this. That's magazine.atavis.com to read this piece and many past issues of incredible work from incredible storytellers. I don't have much by way of a parting shot, and by that I mean I don't have one this week. I just, I don't have it. Okay? BrendanAmero.com, hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. Dig it, friend. Stay wild, CNFers. And if you can't do, interview. See ya. See ya.